Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. Is AI good or bad? Well, that would depend on how AI is applied. AI is a revolutionary capability with the power to do a lot of good and plenty of bad on purpose or by omission. In order for AI to become a social good that improves our lives in broad terms, we must necessarily pick the right use cases and design solutions with a strong focus on ethics and privacy. So, how is AI being used for social good today? And how do we ensure the important topics of ethics and privacy are at the front and center for those designing AI solutions? To answer these questions and many more relating to using data for good, I recently spoke to Dr. Alex Antic. Alex is an award-winning data and analytics leader with a truly impressive CV spanning across quantitative finance, insurance, academia, several government departments, and consulting, as well as advisory and board roles. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, we cover the role data, data science, and AI should play in society, examples of how AI is being used for social good, how public entities ensure people's privacy is maintained, including the use of privacy-enhancing technologies, the most important data science and AI skills for us to foster as a society, how Alex is teaching future data leaders to make ethical design choices, and much more. Let's get to it. Here's Alex. Alex Antic, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. It is so great to have you on the show. Thank you, Jonas. Absolute pleasure. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a few weeks now since we organized it. You've just told me that this is just the highlight of your day. So uh, we're in for a top conversation, I'm sure. And Alex, I've obviously done my research on you and found a very, very impressive resume that you have uh, managed to establish over the last 25 years. And we'll explore that more. But before I talk about that, we should hear it straight from you. So... Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your career background and what you do? My name is Alex. I'm a recovering quant, an aging mathematician and a reformed academic. I think that's probably the easiest way to sum up who I am. Having grown up watching spaghetti westerns, I like to think of myself as a data science gun for hire, but in reality, it's a little bit more boring than that. I, um, I run my own consulting advisory and training business, which allows me to actually help people in industry government, academia, and startups with the data science and AI challenges. And it's a lot of fun. I love what I do. I also really enjoy presenting keynotes at workshops and conferences and industry events, both here and abroad, appearing on podcasts such as this. 
And in my free time, I'm spending some time writing a book, co-authoring some textbooks and even working on a short film idea. So I just can't keep my hands off the world of AI and analytics and can't help but, I guess, share my love for it. But if I can go back a bit, many years ago, after studying maths and computing at uni, I started my career as a quant, as you mentioned, which I considered to be the original data scientists. And where I was lucky to actually work with some amazing people at places that included Macquarie Bank, Commonwealth Bank and Colonial First State. I was also very lucky at the time to meet one of the godfathers of quantitative finance, Myron Scholes, one of the pioneers of the Black-Scholes equation. But after many years of working in the quant space, I ended up moving into the government sector, just as my interest in the notion of data science or social good really increased. And also around the same time that data science was becoming established as a field, about a dec- decade ago now. And since then, my career has included working um, as a consultant and academics. It's been quite broad. But however, the, the common thread throughout my entire career has been centered around this notion of using data and analytics to help solve complex and challenging problems and to really just help others see the benefit of using data and AI. So hopefully that gives you a kind of a rundown on who I am and how I've got to where I am today. Yeah, very interesting. And we probably have a similar academic background, if I may say so, in terms of starting out with that sort of quantitative finance in that realm. That's what I studied as well when I was just a young man. I do remember the Black and Scholes formula, having practiced that into late nights before exams. You have a much more impressive CV than I do, some years later, I must say. And you've already mentioned how you've, you've also worked in academia for many years and a lot of roles across government and also board roles and advisory roles. We need to explore the of course, but how did you get into data science in your career? Sort of what was the moment where you went, okay, this is this quant stuff, it actually is good, but there's something here that I really need to pursue? Sure, yeah, great question. From a very early age, I had a real interest and passion for maths and its, its ability to try and make sense of the world through logic and quantitative techniques. And just as computers were becoming the norm and an integral part of our lives, I thought that studying both maths and computing would be fun and possibly useful at some point. Little did I know at the time just how integral that combination would be to the future of analytics. My love of mathematics eventually led me to pursue an honours degree in pure maths and then a PhD in applied. So the eventual transition to what is known as data science these days felt completely natural to me, given its dependence on my training in maths, stats, and coding. And as my career developed, my passion for helping others, especially at a strategic level, really allowed me to bring together all that I've learned to help organizations innovate and then deliver impact and change. But sometimes I feel like I actually work work in the field of data politics, not data science. I mean, as I'm sure you can understand, once your seniority grows, you quickly realize that the data science is not so much about the technology, really about the people and managing people's expectations of it and trying to juggle all the complications um, beyond the technology itself. So those parts are, have been a challenge, but, an, but all, at the same time, it's been incredibly rewarding to work in this field of data science and AI and hopefully make a difference in some small way. So what are some of these typical challenges that you see in what you call the data policy space? What are some of the daily obstacles there for self and similar leaders to deal with? Often it comes down to, I think, what is a lack of data literacy amongst senior executives and decision makers. Them not really having, I guess, realistic expectations of what you can and can't do with data analytics. They may be sold a dream by a vendor or see some you know, great presentation on AI and its benefits and don't really realize the reality of setting up the capability, what is needed in terms of having the right people, the right infrastructure, the right tools, the right support, and ultimately the right culture to support it. I think they often think, you know, you just throw some money at it, bring on a data scientist or a data engineer, and suddenly all your problems will be solved. But it's much more nuanced that you obviously would know as well in terms of how do you formulate the, the questions in the, you know, in the first place? How do you make sure there's clear alignment between the technology and the strategic goals you're trying to actually solve? Now, how do you actually develop a 
the right culture to begin with that actually benefits and believes in the power of data-driven, evidence-based decision-making. And that's where I see a lot really struggle. And then there are elements of they've invested in data science. They've got some great, you know, proof of concepts, but then often there's a hurdle they face when it comes to productionizing those models. So there are a number of points there where I think I've seen a common issue where a lot of organizations are, you know, can struggle to really scale up their data science capability. Ultimately hinges though, I think, I think of having the right leadership, having people in the CDA, CDO roles who can really help guide the board and senior executives down the right path. Yeah, very interesting. And you sort of make me reflect on the last 40 years of history of these sorts of things playing out more than once. So if you go back, or perhaps 30 years, we go back to sort of mid-90s, there were a lot of executives that didn't have any computer experience. They weren't computer literate as, as such. So for that generation, it would have been hard to accept that things were being computerized and digitized. Fast forward to sort of 2010, call it, then all those executives are computer native. And fast forward to today, everyone on executive committees will have had the the internet in their pocket for quite a long time. That maturity is there and therefore people have the direct experience with those solutions and products and they can make informed decisions. We're not there yet with data and data science. And uh, I think it'll take another sort of five, 10 years for people to really bite onto it. So that's kind of how I reflect on what your comment there is. Is that something you can relate to? Very much. I agree that yet to get to the point where it is a common part of the conversations that senior executives have when it comes to actually driving decision-making. I think that a lot of them are becoming aware of some of the gaps that exist in their own understanding and that of their teams and colleagues, but I haven't seen enough commitment broadly to them upping their education their understanding of a lot of the um, technical and broader aspects of AI to really make a difference. Um, However, I'm seeing that change, especially as regulation and I guess demand from citizens continues to increase around, you know, explainability, responsible use of AI. I think a lot of that will actually drive uh, positive change in the coming years. Uh, And I'm really uh, optimistic about that. You mentioned here consumer expectations and also legislation. And I think that brings us to the main topic that we want to discuss today, which is how can we use data to build a better world? So there's a lot of risks associated with the ascent of AI and so on, and also a lot of doomsday stories out there. But AI has the possibility to be doing a lot of good for humanity as well. I'm sure you have a lot of experience in that space too, as someone who's worked across many government departments. So with your varied experience across enterprise, consulting, government, et cetera, academia, um, I'm interested in your view on the role data science and AI should and can play in society. One thing that I've, an important lesson that I've learned throughout my career is that data science and AI and tech more broadly, it's just a means to an end. It exists to really help us. I really believe about the power of data-driven decision-making in which data and analytics are used to provide evidence-based support for better informed decisions. It may not always help make decision-making easier, but I think it always helps make people make better decisions, which is really, I think, the core of it. I feel we're, we're at a pivotal point in history where we can take control of how tech will continue to shape our lives, especially in relation to the ethical and responsible uh, use of AI that I just touched on. And given the vast amounts of data being generated and used to drive decision-making across many different industries and sectors, I think we have no choice but to really leverage and embrace data science and AI to help us make much better, much more informed decisions. However, at the same time, we really need to be careful with how we do this and what balance and regulation we put in place to support this. 
you just need to look at the abuses of data analytics, even potentially subversive ones, you know, examples such as Cambridge Analytica and, you know, many more recent examples show just how quickly and easily things can go wrong, especially at scale that, are, you know, one of the huge benefits of AI is the scalability, but also they can be a detriment as well. However, overall, I think it's really fantastic to see how much societal discourse there is on how and why tech is being used to influence our lives for social good. And I think this really needs to continue at all levels to ensure that we create a society that successfully leverages the benefits while also mitigating the risks. And there are many, many positive things happening both here and abroad around, you know, data privacy, data sharing, you know, different regulation and, and processes put in place. And a lot of, I guess, negativity that's been associated with some of the big tech giants in recent years has really helped people, I think, become much more aware of what's happening, how it affects them personally once they realize all the tech that's running on their phones, you know, all these amazing you know, deep learning and neural networks that are just helping aid their, their life day to day and just how quickly and easily they share their information and then hopefully are realizing, you know, that can come at a cost. You know, you're, you're giving away this information for free. There, there can be a downside to that rather than just seeing spam all the time on your phone or on your computer. So I think people are becoming much more accrui to the pros and cons and are much more careful, much more willing to stand up and say, we want ourselves heard in terms of how it's being used. So I think that's really good. That's great to have these conversations. And it's not happening just in one or two countries. It's really an international movement, which I think can only be a positive thing for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing to reflect on with social media is that it's free because we are the product. We're not the users. <laughs> exactly. Um, but we're talking about AI being used for social good here. So could you give us some examples of how AI is being used for social good? There's so many examples we could talk about this afternoon. I think in a broad data-driven sense, one that's topical and is a good example to begin with, I think is COVID. It's helped many people who don't normally deal with data and analytics realize just how important data is in the way it's helped them clearly see you know, rapid growth in, in case numbers and the spread of the pandemic, not to mention various apps they've had running on their phone to help with tracking cases and alerts. Beyond that, it's helped them also realize just how people, organization, and countries can work together to really make a difference by leveraging data. But where I'm seeing real valuable and exciting use of data and AI to drive social good is in the broader context of data sharing and not just the use of sexy AI algorithms that we hear so much about, but data sharing such as what government agencies do between one another and between data sharing that occurs also between government and industry with the aim of supporting social good. Examples, you know, quite abound. So examples can include, you know, improving healthcare, such as you know, in particular cases where we're trying to identify those that are in need through proactive intervention by being able to share data between government, medical providers, and maybe even social media to be able to offer people who need it most, you know, personal tailored medical treatments. I think those cases are really exciting and ones that don't get much airplay at times. Beyond this, we've also got these common examples of data sharing being used to help you know, fight crime and fraud and detect stuff at risk in real time, which is gives law enforcement abilities that were previously impossible, especially at scale and in real time. Other examples can include you know, using AI for crisis management, such as predicting spread of bushfires or other types of natural and you know, man-made events. Adaptive learning for early education, trying to do tailored you know, learning regimes for, for young children that are better suited to their um, learning capabilities and strengths. Tackling environmental and agricultural changes, tracking your health in real time based on wearables, and many other examples from the you know, public services sector. Overall, though, I think it's really fantastic that many organizations and governments are jumping on, on the bandwagon of using AI to try and actually drive it for the broader social good by investing in it. I think that's a really important thing, investing in the technology and the capability and then building the right teams and processes to actually move it forward and in the right direction. Yeah. So you have worked in several Australian federal government departments implementing 
AI solutions or overseeing those solutions and whatever it takes to get them stood up. In terms of whatever you're comfortable sharing or whatever you can share, could you give us some concrete example of something you stood up with the team there and, and the challenges you faced? I suppose challenges that are typical, but also ones that are more unique to a government or a public entity? Yes, it's probably also worth talking about the use of AI and processes and practices more broadly used in the public services space, just to give people a better understanding of how it may differ from, say, the private sector. Overall, there's a great deal of focus that's placed on safe and secure capture and storage of data with clear ethical guidelines in place on what can be captured and for what purpose. These specific guidelines and frameworks also dictate how the use of data for specific outcomes, such as data matching and data re-identification, the identification of data sharing is used all within the bounds of regulation and legislation. And then surrounding all that, there's you know security clearances, key personnel, roles and responsibilities, which limit what data they can access security classifications of the systems themselves, having airlock systems, which are not connected to the net, but hold you know, sensitive information. And then this notion of augmented decision-making, making sure there's humans in the loop and that you don't have completely automated decisions, which can you know, potentially have harmful effects on those citizens that we're trying to serve. I think it's also really important that people understand that, especially within the public service space, there's a fine balance that exists between social license what you know, society allows you to get away with in terms of using their data and, and technology to make a difference. The regulation and legislation that surrounds all this and also social good, what you're trying to do to actually drive society forward. As technology tends to move faster than regulation, the challenge often becomes how to leverage current and emerging tech to create societal impact and change whilst remaining within the bounds of any governing strict regulation and legislation. So as an example, I previously was lucky enough to work in a government agency where I helped kick off an exciting project that used this idea of privacy-enhancing technology and was in partnership with private sector organisations as well, all of whom, whom had the same aim in mind, and that was to help detect and deter financial crime, especially at scale and things like money laundering and terrorism financing. And this was really a world-first initiative and was a fantastic technology that allowed us to work within these bounds and to use this technology without having to worry about breaching any privacy and data sharing laws. And this notion of privacy-enhancing technology is really, I think, an important topic that will become much more popular in the future and something that's really close to my heart in terms of from a research perspective and an application perspective I've worked in, in that it's designed to ensure data privacy by allowing us to work with data without actually seeing it. It allows us to protect data in use and not just at rest or in transit. And I really think that the future for privacy enhancing technology beyond also the public sector is really exciting as we're, I think, because I think we're at the cusp of a whole new era of data sharing potential as it allows us to leverage cutting edge tech such as homomorphic encryption and differential privacy to tackle challenges which were previously impossible. And some of the tech giants such as Google and Facebook are already using this tech and you may not even know of it running on your phone. The applications of potential in financial services, healthcare and cyber, I think are in particular, very exciting, and especially in relation to social good. So when it comes to actually, I mean, you asked about, you know, standing up some of these capabilities in government and running these, you know, often you're faced with the same hurdles you'll, you'll face in any organisation. It's, it's, it's winning funding and support initially, making sure you, you can clearly align the technology, the solution you're trying to create to specific strategic outcomes, making a strong case for that. That often, you know, means you have to not only articulate that well, but you know, there's a whole journey you go on to you know, get the right people on board, make sure that they understand what their key benefits are, going through proof of concepts and helping people realise that you know, if they don't invest in this, what, what are the you know, adverse outcomes that can result? So beyond winning the funding, it's then being able to 
build the right teams, having the right people in place, having, you know, not just technical staff, but having the right legal representation, having project managers, people with a data governance and, you know, data ethics background and making sure that you really manage those relationships both internally and with external organizations, given this was a public-private partnership. And often in these cases, working in an agile way to make sure that there's constant conversations with how things are progressing and making sure that you're always clearly aligned with strategic goals. Overarching all that is having the right leadership, which I think is, is kind of the, one of the most crucial um, elements in no matter if you're in public or private sector, there's always the same issues there. But on the public sector side, often you feel like you're being held to a higher standard because, you know, you're, you're privy to so much sensitive information. They have so much power in a way that having the right leadership to navigate and explain that I think is actually quite pivotal and helps projects like this become very successful. Yeah, you're really making me think about this type of information that sits within government entities. And, and it's often linked to some sort of government identifier, right? So you have a some sort of national ID or a in Australia, we, we talk about tax file numbers or Medicare numbers. In, in other countries, they might have a social security number that's similar, which is the number that signifies you as a person. And with that comes the keys to someone's actual identity to some extent. You can do a lot of damage to an individual and a whole group of people if that data gets in the wrong hands. And you're talking about these sort of privacy and enhancing technologies. To bring that down to earth and get some clarity on exactly what these technologies do, would you be able to give some examples of where they might prevent some data from getting out or, or stop someone in the tracks from doing the wrong thing or, or however they work? Sure. So we'll talk about two specific examples which, which come up often. The notion of differential privacy allows you to be able to effectively use data which is anonymized at an aggregate level. So you, you can work on this notion of having you know, a pool of data together that you can you know, release that previously would have been done through, say, de-identification, which has higher risks, but have some mathematical certainty around um, the reduced risk of anyone being able to identify any particular individual who's involved in this particular data set. So there's, there's many examples where people are able to share data, to disseminate data in a broad sense without having to really worry about, I guess, privacy leaks. So often the notion of differential privacy is used for aggregate level data sharing and analysis, and it tends to be much, much more robust against de-anonymization and linkage attacks based on more traditional de-identification processes. And I guess technically speaking, it's based on this notion of adding statistical noise in a measured way to a data set, and then being able to back that out when you want to look at specific information. So... There's a lot of cases that it can be useful in the health sector in, in just managing people's privacy between tech vendors and, and yourself in terms of using it on your phone. And when it comes down to its usage, it ultimately comes down to a trade-off between privacy and, and accuracy that users must guarantee. And you have some control over the way that's formulated mathematically. So example of a use case is, you know, an organization is releasing a large data set for public research, such as, you know, someone holds your medical information, they want to release it more broadly, but they want to combat the risk of re-identification. So differential privacy can be fantastic use case for that. Google used it in, in relation to COVID, looking at um, community mobility reports, helping people gain insight on the spread of COVID without having to worry about um, individual information and, and movements being in a hell at risk. And there are ways you can also use you know, trained machine learning models on private data. Um, things like differentially private stochastic gradient descent actually is, is one that comes to mind, which can be fantastic uh, when it comes to using it for that. So it's typically best, best suited to analyzing broad trends rather than detailed analysis. Now, on the other hand, if you're looking at trying to use cutting-edge privacy-enhancing technology techniques on individual data rather than aggregate data, then you'd probably want to look at techniques like homomorphic encryption, 
which I think are really exciting. And they've only recently, in recent years, they've become computationally feasible. They can kind of blow up your data set once you start encrypting the data. The beauty of them is that you can encrypt your whole data set and then run machine learning or analysis on top of encrypted data, which you could never do before under any other techniques. And there's different levels on terms of what type of homomorphic encryption technique you use that allows you to do either a full range of operations on your data or only a subset of that. So there's fantastic, I think, application of this and something I see increasing in popularity in the coming year or two. At its core, data remains encrypted in memory during processing and at rest. And an example of this could be you know, a vendor's proprietary machine learning model is trained on your encrypted data and only you can decrypt the results. So that's effectively privacy-preserving machine learning. But it does come with challenges. It can be very computationally expensive and limit practical use and scalability. And it can also have restricted limited operations due to inefficiencies. So it can limit the type of machine learning you can actually do on your data. And sometimes there can be issues related to data quality, integrity, and, and suitability in others. But overall, it's an incredibly powerful technique that as it becomes much more computationally viable, I think more and more organizations will, will see the, the, the benefit of just, of, you know, you can just imagine you've got your data encrypted sitting on your say server. You give someone access to an API they can create machine learning models or do analysis on top of that. You don't have to effectively worry about, you know, any sort of data leakage, even in the, in the quantum world. So I think that is an area that is super exciting in the years to come and one that is, that I'm really passionate about. So hopefully that gives you an idea of some of the prevailing techniques in, in this realm of privacy and ethics technology and just how they can be used and are being used these days. Yeah, it's very fascinating and it's making me reflect on a couple of conversations I've had on the podcast with Shalini Kurapati and Minash Rehman, where we talked about synthetic data and synthetic data can be used to some extent to reduce the risk of data sets. But the, this way of encrypting and, and decrypting models is uh, really fascinating. And I, uh, I must uh, confess that I know very little about it, but it's definitely an area that I would like to know more about. It sounds like it's a fairly new discipline. Where would people go to, to find information on this? Great question. There are limited, I think, resources available currently. I can dig some up for you that we can share with, with listeners and we can you know, promote that through the website. There are some examples of work being done by the big four, so through their websites and associated searches, keyword searches with them and privacy enhancing technology, I think, will lead to some common examples. Most Google searches, to be honest, of privacy enhancing technology will come up with some you know, leading examples and some organizations that are doing research in this. It's quite a nascent field in many ways, but there are certain groups that are kind of specializing in it. So yeah, happy to share some links to our chat today if people are interested. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. So we'll link to that in the show notes for sure. Now, Alex, I want to move to another topic that we've touched on today, but haven't discussed in depth. So we're seeing this notion of data sharing and data portability just becoming more and more important. And regulations are popping up around the world, actually, uh, to some extent, even mandating that certain industries have to put their data for sharing. So in Australia, we have open banking, open data is the further extension of that that'll come over time. And the Australian government has just announced a proposed extension to what we call the consumer data right, which is the right to port your consumer data between organizations, more or less. That's, the, that's what it is about. Now that'll also include general financial services. So we have open banking already, but it'll also include things like insurance and so on. And then also telco, so your, your phone and internet. So that's quite a lot of personal and transactional data that you can start to port around to different organizations and, and combine. 
What do these open data initiatives mean for our collective ability to build a better world with data, in your opinion? I think they're actually an exciting part of the broader push for the democratization of data and our collective growing demand to control our own data and the ability to give explicit permission and consent on exactly how and for what purpose our data is used. I believe that sharing is caring, and by that I mean increased sharing of data is vital in helping provide better personalized and more efficient services, and also with increasing risk and fraud detection and mitigation, you know, which definitely pushes forward the whole notion of data use for social good. I see that true social progress is based on the ability to safely and efficiently share data, including via you know, emerging techniques like privacy-enhancing technology, which allow us to work within the you know, current bounds of regulation and legislation. That's in the sense to either bring data together for analysis and usage or to disseminate data, as we talked about the case with differential privacy, for instance, so others can benefit from it. So overall, initiatives such as this, I think, help us move forward in the right direction and allow us to have a voice with how our data is used. So I'm very much all for them. And, and I see it's fantastic that all these new initiatives are being released fairly regularly, both here and abroad. And it's great to see Australia is not really being left behind in any way that we're quite proactive in, in moving forward with this. Yeah, I myself is pretty impressed with the, the Australian government on this particular matter. And I think we're among the leaders in the world uh, in this space. So I think that's pretty exciting. Yes. Now, Alex, if you don't mind, I'd love to shift now to another topic, a related topic, but a different topic nonetheless, because we've talked about your, your government background here and the things you've learned from that. You also have spent many years in academia, and that is, of course, a place where you still are and you're, you're passionate about that and educating the future leaders of analytics. So I'd love to talk to you about that. And when you and I started working in analytics or data science, whatever you want to call it, there weren't really any of these sort of academic courses or full degrees that you could do today. So that's, of course, changed a lot in especially the last five to 10 years. Could you tell us about this evolution of data science education over this time period and what you do today to train and develop the next generation of leaders in this space? Yeah, it's actually been amazing to witness throughout my career how the education space has really changed, in particular in relation to the education and training within the data and analytics space. There are just so many options these days, especially if you want to learn at your own pace, and it's become so much easier to, to pick and choose what you want to learn. So options such as you know massive open online courses, private training, in-house training that some organizations are developing, micro-credentials and short courses, so many incredible options for working professionals, for instance, who want to reskill upskill in data analytics, which is fantastic to see. And some programs I've helped you know, launch and run during my time in academia and still do these days throughout my work. One of the best parts of my job is really in sharing my experience, expertise and insights through teaching with others. And the teaching part of my business really focuses on developing and delivering tailored teaching and training solutions uh, for people I work with by leveraging my industry, government, and academic experience, broader knowledge of the field and, and my network of people that I can you know, reach out to, to, you know, to collaborate with me to give guest lectures and, and you know, many other parts. This stuff includes you know, doing, developing technical training, such as you know, teaching people how to leverage R, Python, SQL, Spark to get up and running quickly, discussing and talking about different applications of various technologies and how they can benefit an organization, such as, you know, when would you use NLP or graph analytics techniques? When are they suitable and what type of benefit can you actually realize? The training also includes helping organizations develop from the ground up the data science capability, you know, understanding what type of people do I need? What culture do I need? What type of infrastructure and tooling will I need? 
This also touches on C-suite training on data literacy, helping them understand you know, what capabilities exist for them and their teams, what's realistic, how they can pivot what they're doing to really move towards a data-driven organization, and how to establish and lead data science and AI teams, which some of them really don't know. They don't realize that leading say IT or data science is quite different. You know, it really, to me, it comes down to this notion of discovery versus delivery. You know, data science needs to be scientific in many ways versus traditional IT. They need to work together, you know, in a symbiotic relationship. But there are key differences that I think people need to realize to really have success and scalability with those opportunities. Also for career coaching for people, either one-on-one or team-based, uh, for those wanting to build and grow their careers, and also run executive workshops and retreats, which is always fun. And also through my affiliations with several leading universities, I help create courses, programs, and initiatives to train and educate future data analytics professionals and leaders. Once again, by leveraging my industry experience and insights to, to ensure that there's relevance with what's being taught to what's actually being used at industry, and to help meet current and future, future needs, you know, looking at where there's maybe potential emerging technologies, you know, nascent fields and where, you know, universities should, should start educating, you know, current students to make sure that they're ready for this. And a big part of that, some of the work I'm currently doing with RMIT is really around how do we ensure that a lot of these technical professionals are actually work ready, these graduates are work ready. We want to make sure that when they hit the ground running for an organization, they're not just technically proficient, but they understand a broad range of skills and experiences that are needed to really, you know, add value to be truly valuable employees. The things that we traditionally known as soft skills, which I think are absolutely integral to success as a data science professional, things like you know communication skills, how do you work as part of a team, how do you think and you know design thinking, agile methodology, things that they wouldn't necessarily taught in their technical STEM studies, but ones that with the right balance of work integrated learning make them really stand out compared to other graduates. I think that is the future of um, data science education and training, and where it's heading is to have kind of that notion of an apprenticeship base you know, elements where you don't just learn the theory and start a job and you're ready to go. You need to, I think, have some integration with with hands-on practice to really round out your studies. And I think that's kind of the future of the training and, and something that I'm really excited to be part of and, and looking forward to helping to develop in the coming year or two. So you're talking here about some sort of apprentice model or a work experience model through universities at the same time, is that it? Exactly. So for instance, a one-year course, which has credit attached to it, but that one-year course is not so much learning theory in a classroom, it's them actually working for an industry partner, industry partner of the, of the university, where they're embedded in a team and they have real outcomes. They're effectively an employee for that fixed term period. They have to deliver value. They have support from for mentors and RMIT staff and academics. They have support from their peers, from other students going through the program. But ultimately, they're responsible for creating value, so they have to actually try and you know do their best in a supportive environment. Actually, apply the skills that they've been learning by working in a in a real team, rather than working on you know let's you know let's be honest, pretend problems that often you work on in a, as part of assessments at university, which are fundamentally important, but they cannot replace the feeling and the emotion and the practicality and pragmatism attached with actually being in a team and having to deliver value. So students that I've seen come out of programs like this. They're just so far ahead of the others. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, you're making me smile because one of the hardest things to teach at university would be what do you do when the data is dirty or it's not actually matching what happens in real life? And uh, exactly. how do you deal with a call center always choosing the wrong field from the drop-down menu or one of those situations? That's very hard to teach when you're teaching how to do a model. When the input is wrong, then the output will be wrong. We all know that. 
And uh, I think this is a great development. I remember when I was uh, early in my career, I worked for an organization that had a partnership like this with a university. And every year we had students in for about four months. And I'd say half of them ended up getting a graduate position after their studies because they proved their worth as well when they were in those organizations and they added a lot of value. They were sort of already up and running. Four months is a good stint for someone to get started and embedded in an organization. And they learned a lot and a lot faster at the same time. So this blend is uh, really powerful. And uh, you've talked a bit here about what are some of the important data science skills for professionals entering the industry in uh, the world we live in today. In the next five to 10 years, what would you say are the important skills for data scientists to have, both from a technical and a non-technical perspective? First of all, I think it's important for people who are aspiring data scientists or new to the field to understand that becoming a strong, really good data scientist is not easy. Much like you just don't walk into a gym, you know, pump some iron, take some protein and walk out looking like Dwayne Johnson. You can't simply learn R, Python coding, learn about some ML, you know, deep learning algorithms and walk into an organization and really create impact immediately. You need to really spend time and effort learning, studying and applying yourself. I think really the key is to really focus on the transferable fundamental skills the mathematics and statistics that underpins machine learning and deep learning and all the techniques you'll be using and to have really strong coding skills even if you're not going to be a software engineer data engineer if you're working as a data scientist you know you'll be coding so understanding the, the key principles and strengths of different languages and the software paradigms that surround that uh, such as you know code reuse code sharing code commenting source control all those, I think, are absolutely vital to becoming a really good data scientist in this day and age, especially as the field becomes really competitive in many areas. Beyond that, other skills that are absolutely paramount, uh, problem solving, being able to really, as you touched on earlier, you're given the you know, dirty data set, how do you actually go about solving issues related to that if you haven't been taught specifically about you know, imputation, missing data, quality of data, how do you solve the broader problems? They won't always be technical, they could be, you know, people problems or problems around building relationships with others and, and getting others on board. I think in this space, you can't escape this notion of being able to, you know, creatively and proactively solve problems. Being curious, I think is absolutely vital as well. Being able to ask, you know, questions, the right questions sometimes, but often it's about just exploring questions with um, say business partners you're working with to better understand the business context of the data that you're using. That's something that I see um, come up all the time and where some people can get really unstuck when they're early in their career. Working as part of a team, something that took me a while to, I guess, realize the importance of early in my career because I loved working often on my own on really complex tasks. That's something I kind of learned throughout my PhD, but I quickly realized that as a team, you can you know, create some fantastic value and have fun doing so. So I think becoming comfortable working collaboratively with others is really beneficial. I can't underestimate really this, the importance of communication skills, both written and presentation. You know, sometimes you can spend a lot of time creating a fantastic model, but if you can't present the benefits both in you know in a, in a paper or in an actual presentation you're giving to colleagues or a manager or a client sometimes you know it can make or break how how that you know model is actually used so i think really trying to finesse and work on your broader communication skills is imperative to to having a successful career as a data scientist i think it's also really important to surround yourself with good people and learn from them try and find roles where you won't be on your own and isolated. You'll actually be, be working with some smart, talented people who are experienced and who can hopefully 
you know, so they can directly share information and mentor you, but also a lot of that will rub off on you as you, you know, observe how they work and, and some of the challenges that they come up against and how they tackle them. And I also think it's important through the mentoring I do nationwide is through my program. I think it's important for people to try and find mentors. I mean, I've had, you know, a couple of really key mentors early in my career. I found that incredibly beneficial. And now that I'm a mentor myself and I've been doing it for quite a while, I've seen the benefits had for my mentees, but also for myself in terms of helping me challenge things, especially if they ask me certain questions, helping me try to better understand what are different you know, solutions to various problems that they find in the workforce. So I think that's actually really important. One tip I'd love to give is, is to tell people, don't rush to implement algorithms by bypassing the science in data science but by, and you know, focusing on the business problem you're trying to solve. I think it's important to always try and start with a simple solution first that you can understand, especially around interpreting outputs and explainability, and then only add complexity as is needed. Some people get excited, you know, they'll, they'll learn about neural networks and some cutting edge, you know, deep learning models. They'll land a roll and all of a sudden they're thrown an Excel spreadsheet and say, that's our data. Can you, you know, try and make sense of it or solve some problem? And they'll try and, you know, try and then quickly build some amazing model. I think that's deviating too far for what for the purpose you're there you're not there to create models per se you're there to solve a business problem using your technical mouse in, with working with data analytics so i think the key is always have a very very clear understanding of the business problem of its context of its alignment to the strategic goals and make sure that the solutions you're developing are clearly aligned to that in a quantitative sense where you can measure your outcomes and measurable impacts that you're having and that will always put you in good stead to you know, build your career, climb the ladder, source funding, and just build credibility with your manager and your clients and customers more broadly. Brilliant advice, Alex. Thank you. So uh, I can only subscribe to what you're saying. And uh, I'd say that most of your stakeholders won't really care about your model, but they will definitely care about the outcome of it. That is uh, what you need to communicate. You need to be able to explain that and speak in their language, not in technical jargon, but in, in business terms which I think you were just touching on, so definitely. That's right. Speak in business terms and make sure the model doesn't do something you don't want it to do. So that's also your job to do cover after technical. It's, it's still important. Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com AI. Now back to the show. Now, Alex, we talk about here what's good for the individual. What are some really important data science skills, AI skills for us to foster as a society? What do we need around us in society to make AI do good? Great question. So one of the key points that I touched on earlier is this broader training, I think of individuals, maybe not formal training, but understanding of data literacy, understanding what data is, what it isn't, how it's actually used to help with decision-making. I think that's absolutely critical. But beyond that, it's really logical and critical thinking, both for general public, like in a much more like we've had historical reading, writing, and computer literacy, you know, developments and revolutions, et cetera. I think, you know, now we're at the data one. Data literacy is a big one. It's also important for senior leaders and government officials who use data and analytics each day to, to make critical decisions to really understand at least some of the basics of, of what data is, how it's used, how it's created, stored, analyzed, 
just some basic concepts so they can then ask the right questions and really push their data scientists and leaders to sit below them to make sure that there's a lot of, I guess, credibility and trust in, in what they're doing. Overall, I'm seeing, I've been seeing a lot of growing demand for data engineering skills and those particular abilities. Many organizations are pushing to productionize and scale their data science models, but I see a lot of them become a bit too eager to productionize models before putting in the effort to first develop the right model you know, in the first place by not focusing on the science and data science. I think anyone can develop quite easily these days a, you know, a fancy deep learning model with a few clicks and a few lines of code, but does the model actually solve a business problem? Could a simpler model be used? Is the model robust to variable data quality? I think these are the critical you know, questions that need to be answered. So having people empowered at senior levels that are making decisions, maybe using these models on a daily basis, having them be a bit more data literate and understanding some of the technical elements of data science I think will be really helpful. We often put too much emphasis, I think, on the models themselves, such as chasing slightly higher accuracy, rather than focusing on data quality and its suitability to the problem at hand. And also with that, you know, giving due consideration to sufficient and consistent, uh, say, labeled data for supervised machine learning tasks. I've also been noticing as, as I speak to people about as, as they're growing their data science capabilities and they're building up the skills within their organizations, much more need for high-level data science expertise, people with really strong technical and business skills, and ones who are more rounded with quantitative and scientific skills in particular, such as ba backgrounds in the traditional quant areas like math, stats, physics, econometrics, etc. And what some of these leaders don't understand is that not all data scientists are created equal. As data science and AI becomes more commoditized, I think the industry will get more competitive and those with strong quantitative skills with a lot of you know, scientific nous and ability will really stand out. So I encourage people to really you know, build up those, those particular skills if they want to become data scientists and really you know, become um, valuable to their organization. But I'm also seeing beyond that growing demand for senior executives with data science and quant skills and expertise. So people who are in, say, chief data analytics roles who have some technical background in that area, they don't come from another area which is quite devoid of any quant training because they're trying to make decisions based on data analytics. So it's, I think it's really important to have people that have some basic understanding at least, if not more, if not hands-on training, so they can you know, ask the right questions and further spur innovation and change in their organizations. Yeah, brilliant list. So there's a lot there for people to take away. And I think I said to you before we started the recording that data science is one of the hardest fields to master at the moment because there is such a depth and such a breadth of skills required to become that uh, data science unicorn that you just described, if you can do all of, the, all of those things, because it requires uh, the technical knowledge and ability to produce uh, models that are highly complex and difficult to interpret by their nature, but also the linking in with the business and understanding business operations and, and other sort of numeric, uh, important numeric topics in a business like finance and so on is, uh, is, is also important for you to understand uh, when you build these things, because it's, it's about improving typically or, or often it's about improving a financial outcome for you or a client and on top of that it's almost a pseudo software design that we were doing so the some some of those uh, software design principles need to be included and uh, you talked about it yourself in terms of human-centered design and so on so there's just a lot there it's huge and one other topic that we also need to become really strong at is ethics 
in my opinion, AI ethics. So the students that we're training today, that you're training, are going to have a huge influence on the privacy and ethical implications of all these AI solutions that are going to come to bear in the next 20 years. So what are we doing, we, the collective we, doing to make sure our future data leaders are well-equipped to make these ethical design choices? It's really yeah, it goes goes to the central ethos of my business, which is centered around this notion of human-centered data science and AI, where technology is a means to an end, as I've you know touched on at the beginning. For me, data science and AI is really about people. It has you know direct impact on people's lives, and I think we we can never forget that when we're developing models, coming up with solutions, productionizing these systems, that moral ethical element I think should be at the heart of it. So developing within future practitioners and leaders. You know, training around logic and critical thinking, I think, is absolutely important. You want them questioning things, making you know scientific, you know, logical judgments, making sure that they understand fundamentals of, as we touched on around data, math, stats. You know, all those are absolutely critical. You want them to be able to question findings. So having a scientific mentality, things around hypothesis testing and rigorous testing techniques, reproducibility, all that is absolutely absolutely important formal ethical training and awareness of responsible AI, I think um, be explored further in a more systematic way to teaching, maybe not just at university, but even you know at earlier years, along with logical and critical thinking, because those concepts form the basis of, of all the, the data-driven work being done now and in the future. I think also an understanding of explainable AI, of why it's important and, and you know what explainability means in with, association with different systems is really important. Uh, that's something we can't really, um, I think, turn a blind eye to. And then what we talked about before, this, this kind of apprenticeship notion, you know, where we integrate industry training as part of uh, degrees in helping bridge the gap between academic theory and the reality of the practice of data analytics, I think is really, really important as well and pivotal to, to the success, success of, of training the next generation. Broader than that, we also have to really ensure that we are increasing diversity and inclusion of our future AI professionals and leaders. We need to have a representative sample of the human population, be it gender, race, disability, class, etc. Having just middle-aged white male geeks developing these models that define our lives just isn't going to work. So there's a lot more that we could probably talk about in relation to, <laughs> to, to ethics and automated decision-making. Uh, happy to ramble on about that if you like, but I think those are really the key. But Having people that can develop these systems and most importantly understand bias, you know, and also ethics around how bias plays in. And there are many, you know, recent examples that have come to mind, such as in 2019 when Apple was investigated over its supposed sexist credit card that used an algorithm that appeared to be biased against women. I think trying to, you know, eradicate issues like that, especially when they're scaled up, is really important. So sufficient training around bias, fairness, ethics, explainability, responsible use is really important and more than more important than I think many, many people realize. It is, and there is so much bias hiding in data that is not only hard to identify, but it is a, a huge risk because we are automating all that bias If unless we somehow design a way out of it. It's such a critical thing, and it's easy to say, oh, yeah, but humans put it in there. Yeah, but that's kind of the that's problem right. that if you're automating that, then you don't have humans taking it out again, and that's actually what... We normally do when we see a wrong choice, we have a chance to course correct. But if, if models are automating a lot of our decisions, then that, that step is, uh, is removed altogether. Now, Alex, before we get to closing remarks, is there anything else that you would like to say on this topic? Or do you feel like we have covered uh, all grounds? 
I guess just a few more words around the bias, given I think it's a very important topic. And you're right, bias can creep in through various data sets, but I think it's also important for people to realize just how much of it comes from inherently through the people that are developing this, the algorithms themselves. There's you know, inherent human bias there, um, and that can be a real problem. So there are numerous points in the process in which bias can creep in. So it's not simply a technical problem to be solved. I think that's really one, one thing I want to make. But yeah, sometimes people ask me, but if you know, AI merely reflects systemic human bias, then why is it such a concern? I think there's really two important points here. One is what you touched on, scalability. You know, models can be far-reaching, can reinforce and perpetuate bias. But also, they also have the potential to allow us to hide from our moral obligation and to justify moral judgments. You know, a bias system can have a huge effect on someone's life and the CEO can then turn around and say, oh, the model told me to do it, so you know, I'm not going to take responsibility. It wasn't a human making a decision. So I think that's, you know, that's something that's very important for front of mind in these discussions. And while we can't completely eliminate bias, we can at least work towards understanding, identifying and reducing it in AI systems. And part of that was once again around having a good understanding of, of how it manifests itself in data, but also around diversity, making sure we have diverse teams, technical, legal, risk governance, gender, age, race, etc. And they all weigh in. And it's also important for us to clearly understand and standardize if we can, what do we mean by fairness, you know, bias, morality, privacy, transparency, explainability. So the future really lies in humans and machines working together to advance society. So I think a way to do this is to try and build socially aware systems, such as by encoding ethical principles directly into the design of these algorithms. And then above all that's really having appropriate regulation and governance. Because if we expect industries and organizations to self-regulate, especially when monopolies are involved, it simply won't work. No, and even if they do, it's often after the damage is done. So a lot of the things we've seen in the last few years is I sort of classified as the data equivalent of an oil or a nuclear accident where stuff gets out that shouldn't have. And then, oh, oops, we didn't put up the right guardrails. We'll do it now, but that's a little bit too late. So we want to avoid that before it happens. Uh, thank you for those last comments. That was uh, really useful for, for me and for listeners. Now, Alex, we're getting to closing remarks. And one of my last questions is uh, I want to ask you to pay it forward and tell us who you would like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why. I think Nana Milmeister, who's the Chief Data and Analytics Officer at RMIT and a colleague of mine would be would be perfect. She's a fantastic leader who's pioneering various university-leading initiatives, trying to and educate the next generation of data science and AI professionals and leaders, um, some of which we've talked about. And I think she could share a wealth of experience throughout her you know, very impressive career um, with your listeners. So I'd highly recommend you you um, reach out to her and have a, have a wonderful chat. That is a brilliant recommendation. And uh, Nana is also an interesting person with an interesting background. I've heard her story before. So that is definitely one that should be told on this show. So thank you for that recommendation. Now, lastly, Alex, where can people find out more about you and get a hold of your content? I'm happy for people to follow me and contact me or reach out through LinkedIn, just Dr. Alex Antic. And visit my website, dralexantic.com, which also links to my um, blog, impartiallyderivative.com. So more than happy to have a chat with people and to see if, if I can help or, or leverage my network to help them in, in their endeavors. Yeah, always happy to chat about anything to do with analytics data and AI. Real passion of mine and can't stop talking about it. That is a wonderful invite to all you listeners out there. So don't hold back, get in touch with Alex. Alex Antic, thank you so much for being on Leaders of Analytics today. I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and learned a lot. 
about lots of things that you have accumulated across your very impressive career. All the best for the future and we'll see you soon. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure, Jonas. Be well.